Well, my name is Darcy, and I go to senior high, and I'm going to be reading the Bible from John chapter 1, verse 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things are made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and through the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and the only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has suffered, has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but, in, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made himself known. Well, good evening. It's great to be here. My name is James. I'm part of the ministry team. Uh, So good to have you watching with us and gathering with us online. Particular welcome to junior and senior high that are gathered with our normal 645 crew and anyone else who's tuning in. When someone famous dies, it's natural to ask those who knew them something about that famous person's life. What was he like? How did she live? What was that person like behind the scenes? Uh, Too often in our world, you get a whole cavalcade of, of gossip, of things that are indiscreet, things shared that were never intended for the public sphere. But when we open God's word... We find in particular John's Gospel, Jesus priming his disciples, priming his friends to tell all when he has gone, to reveal the life that they saw up close. Uh, We have four accounts, four detailed accounts of Jesus' life and ministry in the New Testament. We call them Gospels. Uh, They're announcements of good news about Jesus. Uh, And if you've got the four men who we associate with those Gospels together in one room, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, how would each one begin to tell or how would they answer that question, what was Jesus like? Mark would probably be the first one to pipe up. He is the earliest gospel that we have and he'd be the first to pipe up because he's excited. Mark is a fast talker. Within 15 verses of his first chapter, he's got Jesus preaching repentance. And by the end of that first chapter, Jesus had been baptised, tempted, He's healed a stack of people and he's cast out all these demons. Mark is a gospel on the move. Matthew comes next. He takes a slower, deeper run into that answer 
about who Jesus is. He starts back at Abraham and he shows that Jesus rises up out of the long story of God's people, all of those men and women of God in centuries past. Luke's sitting there with his Greek mate. Luke knew a stack of people who knew Jesus firsthand. And Luke is telling his friend Theophilus all about Jesus. And he starts with Jesus' birth, all of the drama around that birth. Angels, shepherds, the lot. John is sitting quietly and waiting. His gospel comes last in the timeline. And when he does speak, he simply says, in the beginning. It's a phrase that's guaranteed to catch the attention. He's just cited the very first words of the scriptures. He's gone all the way back to Genesis to tell the story of Jesus. John's gospel is different. It's a mark of difference, not just in the fact that it was written a bit later than the other three gospels, but it's different in style. It's also different in content. It's the same Jesus we encounter in Matthew and Mark and Luke, but in John we often see Jesus speaking at greater length. We hear him praying at depth that we don't hear in the other Gospels. And we certainly see him priming his disciples to tell others the good news, to be about a ministry that engages even us today and tonight. Towards the end of John's Gospel in chapter 20, John admits he hasn't told it all. He hasn't included everything that he saw and heard from Jesus. He writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. John is driven to magnify Jesus. He wants Jesus larger and clearer in our mind's eye. He wants to answer the question that burns in every chapter of this gospel, who is Jesus and why did he come? As the whole account will tell, Jesus is coming as one long promised. He is the Son of God and he has something for you and for me. He comes that we might have life, life now and eternally with him. The entire reason that we're opening John's Gospel tonight and in the weeks ahead is not just so that each of us might know a little bit more about Jesus, but our hope, our prayer, is that each of us would know him personally and the life that he can give us. And that chapter, that, those verses that Darcy just read for us, the opening 18 verses, pack so much of what will happen in the rest of the Gospel, certainly in the first three chapters that we're going to open in the next six weeks. We're going to see here the Word as God, Creator, life and light. Then we're going to see the Word and people. And lastly, the Word become flesh. Well, let's look at that first part here. The Word as God, Creator, light and life. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Now I don't know about you, but whenever I think I start to tell someone about Jesus, I start with the man. I start with Jesus up close and personal, 
And if the conversation lasts long enough, we eventually get to Jesus as the Son of God. That's on our agenda, isn't it, as we approach share life. John is bold enough to go the opposite route. He starts with the, on the largest terms he can possibly have to give us the biggest context for Jesus in terms of his character and his role. I mean, back in Genesis 1, the earth might have been without form or void, but Jesus certainly wasn't. He was there in all his character and fullness of role. To capture that, John's inspired to use a particular term to describe him as the word or logos in Greek. It's a brilliant word that distills or captures uh, in one word something of the scale of who Jesus is. In the Old Testament, God's word is a mighty thing. It is by that word that God creates and he reveals and he saves. And we see all three in Jesus in motion. In verse 3, we're told that, all, that through him all things were made. John's telling us there that Jesus is the agent of creation. He is the means by which all things exist, including you and me. Uh, in Colossians 1, uh, Paul's expanding on this point when he states, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. What does that mean? It bends the mind, doesn't it, to think that Jesus is the beginning of creation and he is the goal of creation. He is the very adhesive that keeps it all together. Whatever else that entails, I think this means that Jesus' word and literally his voice at times is the very means by which all things are made and sustained, by which all things are kept together. Think about what we see of Jesus and hear of him in the Gospels. In Mark 4, he tells a storm what to do and the storm cell obeys. When he wants to, he can direct fish into a net at huge scale. Luke 5, John 21. In a few weeks' time, in John chapter 2, he will turn water into wine. And deeper into John, in John 11, he will stand in front of an open tomb and tell a dead man, get up. And Lazarus will walk out of that black hole. Friends, what we have there in, in John 11 is a little version of what will happen at the end of all things. It will be Jesus' voice that calls you and me out and says, get up. I think on those grounds, we can assume that he's that voice right there at the beginning, saying, let there be light, and there was light. He is the means by which all things are made. And that emphasis on Jesus' creative word finds grounds in Hebrews 1 verse 3. We're told there the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. So Jesus, as the word, is the creator, but he's also the ultimate revealer of God. He is the representation. He is the radiance of God's glory. 
As we head deeper into John's Gospel, this is going to be one of the deepest wrestles we encounter inside the disciples and his first hearers. Who is this guy? Who is this man? Right up to the last evening before he's arrested, Thomas and the other disciples say to Jesus, look, look, just give us a glimpse of the Father. Just give us one look, long look at God. And what does Jesus say? He says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. You're looking at God. Now, friend, you might be watching tonight for all sorts of reasons. You might be tuning in because you are genuinely curious. You're hungry to know more about this fellow Jesus. You've maybe watched his people. You've heard something, read something. I want to know more. But you, like so many, might think, I can't really ever know God, but I might find out a bit more about him. Listen to Jesus. Watch him in the pages of this gospel. For he is the fullest revelation of God that we have. You are watching God in action. And he can be known. Not just known about, but known personally. The word who creates, the word who reveals, and the word who saves. As we heard in John 20, Jesus come to give something, to bring something. He has come to give us life. He's come to save us from sin, to deliver us from death, to make us right with him. It's not enough to simply watch him. We're called to respond. And in this gospel, we will encounter the full range of responses. Yes, no, and everything in between. What will your response be? What will mine be? That question matters deeply. We're not just dealing with one great man of history. We are dealing with God, your creator and mine. In verse 1, he's described as with God and the word was God. Not only is Jesus fully God, but as one who was with God, there's clearly someone else in the picture under that same title of God. What John's giving us here is a view of the Father and the Son, a God who is in relationship, in fact, a three-way relationship. God the Father, the Son, and as we'll hear in chapter 1, verse 32, the Holy Spirit. One of the reasons this gospel is so precious to us is it gives us a deepening, growing portrait of an intimacy between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see God in motion. When Jesus arrives, the Father and the Son are in play. Again and again, we're going to hear Jesus saying how much he loves the Father's will. He is here to do the Father's work. And Jesus is excited at the prospect of the Holy Spirit coming and indwelling his people. When Jesus arrives, the whole of God is in play, which lands us in verses 5 4 and 5, on a huge note of hope. We're told there in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Friends, if we take an honest look at history, 
the vast majority of religious beliefs and spiritual sort of views of the world have been dualistic or a two-part view of, of reality where you've got darkness and light, goodness and evil, what is right and what is wrong in constant battle or tension, either as equals or with one party the stronger. In so many religious beliefs and other areas, people have looked at the world, their own lives, and concluded actually darkness holds the upper hand, particularly given that death just closes it all out all the time. And don't we get a sense of that right now? With the pandemic raging and we in lockdown, there's something deadly on the move. And we in fear and caution are trying to avoid it. Perhaps the deepest fear is that God himself carries within him a deep strain of darkness. Is that your fear? Do you fear that God is actually fickle or he is cruel? In this passage, John acknowledges the reality of darkness. But his focus is on one far greater, isn't it? The one in whom is found life and light. John will write later on in 1 John 5, 1 John chapter 1 verse 5, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God is good through and through. Verse 5 certainly primes us for conflict between light and darkness, but also for the failure of darkness to prevail. There is a great, I think, a deliberate ambiguity in verse 5. Something ambiguous, it's not quite sure which one it is. And I think it's deliberate on this part. If you look in your Bibles, you'll see that it often puts one word there in the main text, but another one down the bottom in the footnotes. It's possible to translate verse 5 as, the darkness has not overcome it, being the light. In the sense that it hasn't defeated it, it hasn't grabbed the light, it hasn't cast it down. But it's also possible to translate it as the darkness has not understood it. In the sense that the light that is in Jesus, the life that is in God, is so brilliant, it's so rich, that it cannot possibly be comprehended or understood by evil. In John, uh, God's grace, his wisdom and love will confound the darkness again and again. The way that Jesus behaves just won't make sense in a broken world but it will make perfect sense in his kingdom. Friends, in the midst of all that is dark at the moment, all that shadows us, and in our lockdown, we can be haunted, can't we? We might be in comfort, we might be in some degree of safety, but there's something strange in our season. There is a low-spiritedness that can breed a deeper darkness. And I know I'm speaking tonight to many who will be struggling. Friends, in the midst of all that shadows us, take courage today. Know that in Jesus, we encounter a God who is absolutely good. He's not cruel and he's not fickle. He does not play games. In him, he is full of life and a light shining in dark places. Darkness is real, 
but it does not win. Not today and not on that final day. Darkness is real, but it does not win. Do not despair, do not give up, for know this, the one who is victorious has an eye on you. He knows your name as he does mine. His concern for the individual. So far, John's portrait of Jesus, it is epic, isn't it? And eternal. It's vast in its scale. That's what makes what comes next so arresting. So part two, the word and people. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That movement from five to six, it is like looking at a satellite shot, isn't it, of the earth. At first of all, we've got this huge, vast panorama as how God would see, and then we get a sudden close-up of one man named John. He's moved from the epic to the intimate, from the eternal to the temporal, telling us that the God who's always been creating, sustaining all things, he works through and in time and place. He works with people like John, like John the Baptist, like you and me. John the Baptist has a unique role in bearing witness to the light. Next week we'll hear him pointing his generation to Jesus in that God-given prophetic role that he has. But the truth is that God's regularly sending people and speaking through them to reveal Jesus. Whether it's John who writes this gospel, whether it's the guy preaching to you tonight, or it's the neighbour speaking about the Lord Jesus over the fence. The word works with people for the life that is in him is the light of all mankind. In verses 9 to 11, we're told that the true light was coming into the world. It's like dawn spreading into the darkness. It's full of hope, but it's, got heavy. it's, it's heavy with portent, isn't it? With something that's arriving and coming. Because in verses 10 and 11, it spells out the nature of that darkness. It's not a lack of light, but a poverty of relationship. It is the darkness of sin. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Can you imagine arriving home to a house that you built, to people who are your family, and no one recognises you? You are treated as a stranger? That's what's being described as here. The world, as it's defined here, is the created order in rebellion against him, in particular, humanity. There's a deep wrench in relationship between the creator and those made in his image, such that he's not recognised, he's not given due honour, he's not feared as he should be. He arrives as a stranger, most cuttingly amongst his own. The Jewish people whom he'd created out of Abraham and Sarah, and they don't receive him as Messiah. Here is the sphere of conflict. Here is John setting the stage for what will be the great battle zone within John's gospel. We'll see it next week, as soon as the most deadly opposition arrives. And the sad and hard thing in John's gospel is that the most bitter, deadly opposition 
will come from those who actually know the Bible. They know what we call the Old Testament scriptures off by heart, and yet they don't recognise the word of God standing in front of them. Such is the dead darkness of sin. But as we've noted, life and light are greater still. And here John, in verses 12 to 13, he lays out the great project, the grand work of Jesus that is continuing even to today. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Now, we're going to have to wait until chapter 3 to unpack this in full. It's nothing less than the new birth. But the hope here is clear, isn't it? Jesus actually arrived, even though he's been treated like a stranger, he's arrived to create a family, the children of God. And they're not going to come out according to their racial background, according to who their parents were, not even according to the decisions that we might make but all according to the will of God and his action here as saviour. So if, like me, you're gathered here tonight as someone who says, Jesus is my Lord, I love him, he's my saviour, then know that we are children of God only because he's decided that we would be numbered as his family. Only because he who is light and life has decided out of great love to step into our death and darkness and make us his own. That's the saving work that John is drilling deep and long and looking at in this gospel. We meet as a saved people and the key to that saving work lies in what's next, the next verse in our last part tonight. Part three, the word become flesh. We noted in that movement, didn't we, from five to six, that John's portrait of Jesus had moved from the epic to the intimate, from the eternal to the temporal, that which is in time and space. In the fact that God, of all creation, he works in and with people like us. In truth, that's always been true of God. We see it back in the garden with Adam and Eve. We see it with uh, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Moses, David, Ruth, all of them. God is a God of relationship. Indeed, when he created Israel and he led them out of Egypt, he, as the invisible God, he made himself vividly present in the tabernacle or the sacred tent in the middle of the campsite. That became the holy place in the temple at the heart of the nation in Jerusalem. But with Jesus, our relational God, he does something new in time and in place. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word who was there at the beginning, the word who as God, with God, the one through whom all things were made, became flesh. As a mate of mine says, a God with teeth and toenails. A God who arrived in Mary's womb, was born as you are born, as am I. He enters into his own creation and literally tabernacles. He makes his dwelling among us. That's the word here in the Greek. He tabernacles with us. God camps. 
Watch this one in chapter 2 when this one steps into the temple complex. For without giving up any of his fullness as God, he comes as a man. He walks in our shoes. He lives as we live. He identifies profoundly with each of us made in his image. Here in what we call the incarnation, the epic and the they are one. The eternal and the temporal are perfectly meshed together. The wonder of Jesus, the Son of God. And this gospel was written by one of those who first tasted that wonder. John writes, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I think it's natural, isn't it, right, to think of God's glory as brilliant, blinding light. That's certainly what comes to mind when I hear the word glory. And there are those in Scripture who experience God in exactly that way. But glory is not just light. It's not just luminescence. The truth is, the incarnate Jesus, he didn't glow. He wasn't 10 feet tall and he didn't float above the ground. He didn't have a voice of thunder. We know that John and others saw the transfigured Christ in his brilliance. They were there when he ascended back to the Father. But when they speak of the glory of God, what they counter is his character and his promises fulfilled in action. Jesus was so ordinary in appearance that people didn't recognise anything different until he started speaking and acting. That's when God's grace and truth became evident. And that's why John's written this account of what Jesus said and did. A saving work that requires nothing less than God becoming flesh, entering into his creation so that he might deal with that darkness in you and me, the darkness of sin. It is as that word become flesh that he goes to the cross. He bears our sin instead of us. He is condemned in our place and then, having died, he rises physically from the dead, never to die again. All of that's before us as we open John's Gospel tonight. Friends, read on. Read ahead. Pull this apart in our growth groups. Pray through each part of this Gospel. Feed deeply here. For in Jesus we encounter the Word who is God, Creator, Light and Life. The Word who works in and through people. The Word become flesh, epic and intimate, eternal and temporal, gloriously one. No one's ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God, as in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Do you know him? Amen. Well, welcome back, friends. It's wonderful to hear about Share Life and leading into this Q&A session. Um, James, I, I want to ask you a question. From the passage that we've just read from John chapter 1, uh, what would be your go-to verse to talk to people about Jesus? I just said, I think... Part of me would go to verse 14, um, that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Um, to be able to speak of a God who does draw near, who identifies with our experience, um, 
that uh, so treasures a human being that he's willing to become a human being and enter into his own creation. Um, but I think to the, the fact that in him is light and life, that Jesus comes uh, with hope, but also he exposes. It's a light that does reveal uh, not just himself as God, but us where we are. So I think that's a way in uh, to say that, that Jesus is a compelling presence, but he's also confronting. Um, and in a world where there is death and there is darkness, uh, light wins, uh, goodness wins. And that, that's wonderful. And, and I know personally that people have become Christians through this passage because my, my dear wife became a Christian reading this exact chapter of the Bible. So praise God and I encourage you to get along to share life, to learn out how you can do that better. Well, now here's a tougher question. You ready for this, James? I think so, yeah. Tougher question for you. Uh, why can we assume Jesus was the one to say, let there be light? What is the role of the Father in creation and what is the role of the Spirit in creation? Yeah, good question. I, I, I realize that was a bold statement of me to make that and I'm still chewing through the reality of that myself. I think working out the scale of what it means for Jesus to be the one through whom all things were made um, and to land most fully on his word uh, <clears throat> using Hebrews 1 uh, that he's sustaining all things by his powerful word. Uh, I am confident that it is Jesus' voice that will be uh, the authoritative voice at the end. Uh, in, Luke, in John 11, uh, he says, uh, I am the resurrection and the life, um, which, which states, and then what he then goes on to do is Lazarus. Lazarus, I take as a tiny, a small version of the much larger event that will happen at the end of all things. He will say to all humanity, get up. He will call us uh, to account on that day uh, and back from the dead. And so I'm working backwards from that moment to think if he is uh, the authoritative voice at the end and we've been told that he is the means by which all things were made, uh, we have, I don't think we can, uh, I mean, I, I'm happy to, to argue the case, but I, I, to think that that's his voice saying at the very beginning, let there be light. I think where in terms of the Father and the Spirit are involved in creation, I think we need to recognise that though there are distinct roles within the Trinity, really where one is, the other two are found. It's why we'll encounter uh, this depiction of Jesus being baptised and the Spirit descending on him, the Father saying, this is my Son. Uh, they, they, are, they are working as one. And so I, I think what we learned in Galatians is that the Holy Spirit, his, his job is within us making us more and more like Jesus. So there's a is a recreative work being done by the Holy Spirit in us, even tonight, with his word in play. And over all that is the Father. Jesus, Jesus is obsessed with the Father. He loves doing the Father's will and giving him the glory. And the Father sends the Spirit, who can't stop telling us about Jesus. And around and around it goes. So I think, um, whilst we need to recognise there are distinct roles within the Trinity... They are working as one, and I, there's not a better gospel to see that than John's gospel. In terms of creation, I think they're all involved. We're just being told here Jesus is the agent or the means, and it looks like it's his voice in play. Uh, that's as far. Happy to think more through that and um, maybe dig in more at Sermon Extra. Yeah. Well, another one that you may be able to dig into a bit more in Sermon Extra. Well, first, let me ask you this. 
Did you do Hebrew and Greek when you were studying at Bible college? So I just did uh, Greek. Uh, Hebrew was a, was a mountain too far. So um, I, I humbly admit that, yeah. It was a mountain too far for me too, brother. So, um, but this question you still may be able to answer is, as the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek, are the written languages different when they talk about the beginning, you know, in the beginning? Um, I, I would say we have no reason to doubt that John is very deliberate in using a Genesis 1 echo, a phrase, um, to, to start his gospel account. Uh, he wants to depict the one who was there very much alive in full form and role and character at the beginning. Um, so I, yeah, I think it's a deliberate Genesis um, uh, echo. Uh, happy to be corrected on that, but I can't see how uh, that the, the language be anything dramatically different in the Hebrew. Yeah. And before Mark comes and leads us in prayer, have you got any final word for us from this passage? Um, no, not more than what I've already said, but I think um, particularly in light of where we are and the season we're in, hold firmly to the fact of light overcoming darkness. Um, as we are seeking to comfort our neighbours, and sometimes that's the only people we're going to see or glimpse, um, bring that hope to them. Uh, that these are dark, strange times, these are testing times economically. Um, we have one who is light and life, and darkness has not overcome it nor understood it. So I think if the only other word is that if we take it as understood, uh, keep an eye out for what, the way Jesus behaves. It makes no sense in this world, but it makes brilliant sense when we know him and we know the gospel. Yeah. Amen.